So the theme of this evening's talk is renunciation. And I don't know whether you are aware of it or not, but you are on the renunciate path. Perhaps being here, it's becoming clear to you, but the tradition that we practice in has a long history of renunciation practice. And the Buddha was actually the original renunciate, the founder of this tradition. And uh, many of you may know the story of his life. He was actually born into a very wealthy family, or, uh, sometimes even considered a prince in a, in a family of kings and queens. And he lived a life of complete luxury with every sense desire filled, nothing uh, that he couldn't have. But once he realized the limitations of that kind of life, that there wasn't ultimate happiness to be found there, and certainly that old age sickness and death will find you no matter how many possessions you have and sense desires you get filled, he left that life and undertook a period of six years of extremely ascetic practices. I think it was this morning Bonnie was mentioning that so ascetic that he said um, that he starved himself, took just a grain of rice a week. And he said if he touched his belly button, he could feel his spine, his hair fell out, his skin was sallow and gaunt. He undertook the practice of not bathing, of wearing just rags and living out in caves. So extremely ascetic practices. But eventually realized that that also was not the way that he hadn't uh, found the end of suffering that he had been looking for. And so that was the moment, the time when he realized that he couldn't actually do his spiritual practice being so weak and emaciated. And that's when Sujata, the milkmaid, the young woman from the local village, came and offered him some milk rice, and he took sustenance. And with that strength that he gained from eating, he was able to make his way to what became, wasn't then, but became Bodhgaya and sat under the Bodhi tree and vowed not to move until he attained awakening. But he needed that sustenance. He needed, he found that ascetic practices weren't the way. And so ever since then, he devoted himself and taught what he called the middle way, which is between indulgence, but, betw- uh, but at the other end, not extreme asceticism the middle way, the middle path. But what he called the middle path would to us be probably extreme asceticism, you know, living a very simple lifestyle where he said all one needs are what he called the four requisites of food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. But they're all very simple. Clothing was just a few robes. Uh, Food was what was offered into the meal, the alms bowl. Shelter was, you know, often under trees or in a cave or a hut. Very simple. But that we need the basics to be taken care of. This is not about tormenting or starving ourselves to achieve some kind of spiritual ideal. But even after the Buddha's enlightenment, there are many stories of Mara, who's the embodiment of doubt or... um, uh, evil, of, of temptation, coming to the Buddha and trying to uh, take him off his clear path of practice and teaching. And Mara would promise him wealth and power, say, you could be a wheel-turning monarch, or I'll turn this mountain into gold, and you can give everyone gold, and then everyone will be rich if you just not 
do what you're doing, waking people up. And the Buddha always said, no, I'm not interested in any of that. I found a greater happiness. And he was actually always called the happy one. People would describe him as being radiant. It wasn't a big smile. I mean, the Buddha never has a, like a big grin, but always this very contented stillness in his appearance and his demeanor. But it is still considered a path of renunciation. We are practicing in the Theravadan tradition. Theravada means the way of the elders. And our elders are all the monks and nuns, the monastics who've gone before us for these thousands of years, living in a monastic lifestyle. They're the ones that have carried this tradition mainly to this day. It's actually a very unusual thing that so many lay people are practicing, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, But the monastics had a huge... Um, storehouse, what's the word, of rules that they followed, precepts, 227 for monks, even more for bhikkhunis, for fully ordained women. They had 311 or something. Definitely celibate, couldn't handle money, um, certainly no eating afternoon. The eight precepts that some of you have taken here form the basis of their monastic training, but hundreds of rules beyond that governing every aspect of how they lived and interacted with people, all to promote a simple lifestyle, clearing the mind and heart, and making time available for practice. So you're just having a taste of that. there's, There's a way in which how we practice here is very much like the monastic lifestyle. Certainly, you know, take... We're not using, there's no credit card thing going here, right? There's, there's no entertainment, as we've said. Dharma talk is about as entertaining as you get, unless you count your own mind. It's pretty entertaining. Um, you know, the small room, the clothes you brought, this is all we have to choose from here. So there is that simplicity that you're invited into in just being here on retreat. The, the renunciation of following the schedule, not just going after your own whims and desires, but actually being here for training. A lot of renunciation. And the simplicity of our life here. There's not much going on. I mean, a lot up here, a lot. If we could see the thought bubbles, this room would be a kaleidoscope of chaos. But the outer expression is pretty simple. One of the cartoons that I like in my collection, these cartoons often, in, when they depict meditation, it's kind of a gloomy zendo kind of look. It's very austere and these robed figures in the dark. And the smaller robed figure is leaning over to the taller one. And you can tell they've just asked a question. And so the older one is answering, nothing happens next. This is it. <laughs> So maybe you've had that question, when does it change? You know, what, what? nothing happens next. This is it. But this is the invitation. Um, as we let go of distraction, let go of entertainment, let go of all of these diversions that we commonly fill our time with, we can become more present for what's here doesn't mean that that's often easy or pleasant, but that's the invitation. So this is our lineage. There are some uh, great teachings about this and books you can read about monastic life and, 
and just the sincerity of intention that our lineage holders had to their practice. There's a great book called Forest Recollections by uh, Kamala Tiavanich. And she writes about the forest monks, mainly monks, some nuns, um, in the early to mid-20th century. And at that time there was a real resurgence of Buddhism and interest in practice, but these monks didn't want to practice in the cities or in comfortable towns. They actually were forest monks. They lived out in the woods. And at that time in Thailand, not that long ago, there were still extensive forests and jungles with literally tigers and elephants living there. And so as part of their ascetic practice, they would go on what's called tudong, where they would just take what they could carry, their robes, a bowl. They had this multi-purpose umbrella that would be for sun, for shade, for rain, and then they would put a net over it that was their sleeping mosquito net. That was all they would have, and they would wander through these jungles. And there would be stories of the monks the next year wandering along the same path and just seeing an upturned bowl and a few shreds of a robe where a monk had literally been eaten by a tiger because they were out in these jungles, but still they would go because there was that wish to be out there in nature and live as simply as possible, just with the practice supporting themselves. And then Upasaka Ki was a a laywoman, also around this time, mid-20th century, one of the foremost women teachers of that era, Very unusual for a woman to become a teacher. Unfortunately, Buddhism is a rather patriarchal system and um, Thailand at the time, patriarchal society. But she was so sincere and intent on her practice that she became awakened and then became a teacher. But she wasn't very well supported, especially in the beginning because it was so unusual for her to do that. She has a great book called Unentangled Knowing, Uh, about her central teachings. And she took over an abandoned monastery with a few of her followers. And this is what she said about their practice there. For food, we lived off the delicious bamboo shoots growing in the bamboo clusters at the top of the hill. That was it. She doesn't mention anything else, bamboo shoots. The bitter fruits and berries that the trees produced during the rainy season provided our medicine. As for utensils, we used whatever we could find in the forest. Coconut shells, for instance, made excellent bowls. You didn't have to worry about their getting broken. We kept patching up our old clothes and slept on old mats and wooden pillows in the meeting hall. Up in the cave, I kept another wooden pillow to use when I was there. Wooden pillows are ideal for meditators. If you use soft ones, you you have to worry about putting them away safely. So think about that next time you look at your pile of cushions. Some bit of wood might be just the ticket. But how do we as lay people in the 21st century relate to teachings and experiences like that? This kind of intensity and sincerity of practice. It's important to remember that the Buddha gave very different teachings to monastics than he did to lay people. So there's a a great sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya where a lay man, a householder, as they're called, as we are called, 
came to the Buddha and said, Venerable Sir, we are lay people who enjoy sensual pleasures, dwelling at home in a a bed crowded with children, enjoying fine sandalwood, wearing garlands, scents, and unguents, accepting gold and silver. Let the Blessed One teach the Dharma to us in a way that will lead to our welfare and happiness, both in the present life and in the future life as well. So here's a, this person inviting the Buddha to give him guidance on uh, how to live in a wise way as a layperson. What's interesting is the Buddha doesn't come back and say, oh, you should give all that up, the gold and the silver and the fine sandal, go and live in a cave, just wear robes. He responds in, uh, 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 with a teaching about the four things that lead to happiness in lay life, in this very life. He said, you should put out wise effort. Bonnie was talking about wise effort last night, towards one's livelihood, toward taking care of oneself. said one should put effort to protecting what one has rightfully gained. So actually preserving your wealth and your, um, the things that you own, taking care of them. You should develop and cultivate good friendships, meaning with people who are virtuous, generous, wise, who are supportive on the path. And you should cultivate balanced living, not extravagant, but not miserly. So again, this middle way and really responsive to this person asking the question. And we might relate if the the Buddha were here today. Perhaps that's one of the questions we might ask. How do we live in with all of the comforts that we have access to. So back then, you know, having fine sandalwood and wearing garlands and scents, that was considered luxurious. Here, you know, look at what we have. Every one of us here has so, so much access to comfort and, and to health care, well, these days, hopefully, um, but just so many ways in which our lives um, have these blessings in them in ways people back then could never have imagined. You know, even things like washing machines and microwaves and all of the ways we can take care of ourselves, all of the possessions we might have, all of the entertainment we have access to, the food, the, all of the varieties of food and the, you know, through, you know, Amazon, you could, it's like a portal to anything. You can almost get anything and click and it's, it comes. But we're actually living in what one of my teachers called high-class samsara. Samsara is this round of becoming, this round of alternating pleasure and pain that we as human beings live in. It, it might be high-class, it might be very comfortable, but it's still samsara. So how do we as lay people with access to that make wise choices to support our spiritual life and practice? So the big question is, what is enough? What is the right amount? What is supportive of practice? I have a friend who made this giant teacup. She actually made them to sell and just wrote on it, enough. So just this sense. What and so and I really like that because to have that as a question, because it's not, you know, oh, this is right and this is wrong, and I'm certainly not giving this talk to kind of put out a a strong view about this or say how you should or shouldn't live, what you shouldn't, shouldn't have. But to invite the question, that's how we practice with it. And we're also creating this really unusual hybrid 
of practitioner, where we're lay people, most of us here, um, but we're very sincere about our practice. We're practicing intensively here more than in many monasteries. In many monasteries, people just, they might practice a little bit here and there, but they often are just living a life. They might do ceremonies and rituals and chanting, but some monastics that I've met in Asia are not practicing intensively. We're practicing really intensively here, yet we're lay people. So this new uh, model of a, of a Buddhist, maybe you don't consider yourself a Buddhist, but you're certainly a meditator that's very serious about your practice, about deepening wisdom and compassion, maybe even about waking up. It's a new, um, a new development in bringing Buddhism to the West. But we can feel a little on that in the, in the middle there, not quite sure how do we do this. We can be like St. Augustine, that famous con, con, contemplative, very sincere, but said his prayer was, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. <laughs> you relate, to, you know, you ha- we have this aspiration for, for our spiritual practice, but not quite ready to give up all of the comforts and the uh, enticements of our life. So what are we talking about here, renunciation, as far as our practice? The Pali word is nekama, and it's central in the Buddha's teachings. It's part of the Eightfold Path, Four Noble Truths that talk about the, the origin of suffering, the, the suffer, there is suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering, the path to suffering. So the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path. The second path factor here is the subsets and all the numbers is wise intention, of which there's three parts. The first is the intention towards renunciation. The others being towards non-greed and non-harming. They're really how we are in the world. But central there is the intention towards renunciation. It's also one of the paramis, these ten qualities of the heart that we develop on our path of practice. It said the Buddha developed these paramis in all of his preceding lifetimes up until his awakening. The paramis of um, patience and generosity and kindness. Renunciation is a parami that we're called on to develop in our practice. So it's central. So how do we relate to it? It doesn't have a lot of good press in our culture, right? Renunciation. Because our usual understanding of it is is giving up, letting go, denying ourselves, rejecting. And it has certainly a flavor of asceticism. Again, in my cartoon collection, this is the ca- a cartoon with Hagar the Horrible. You know him? He's the Viking who's always going out on raids and likes to eat and everything. He's got a big belly. And this is a, the subgenre of Vikings and gurus. It's a very small subgenre. But anyway, in this cartoon, a few panels, Hagar's climbing up a mountain. You know, he's usually got this little helmet with the horns and a sword. He's climbing up the mountain, laboring away. In the second frame, he gets to meet someone, and it's this wise-looking guru person, you know, the beard and the top, sitting there at the top of the mountain. And Hagar says to him, Oh, great sage, please teach me the secret of happiness. And the third frame, the guru says, simplicity, 
self-restraint and renunciation. I think it was a Buddhist guru. In the fourth frame, you can see Hagar pausing, and then he says, is there anyone else up here I can talk to? <laughs> we can feel like that, right? Seems like a, it sounds lovely, but perhaps like St. Augustine, not quite now. But it's interesting to note that even the Buddha wasn't so wild about it in the beginning. Again, this is from the suttas, Anguttara Nikaya, the Tapusa Sutta. It's a little long, so I'll read it to you. Venerable Ananda is, uh, features in many, many suttas. He was the Buddha's great disciple and attendant. Actually, his cousin served him for 25 years or something. And actually, the one that memorized, he was with the Buddha so often, had a great memory, memorized many of the suttas. So what we have is Ananda reciting and out of, from memory these teachings. So here's Venerable Ananda, together with Tapusa, the householder, went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, Tapusa, the householder here, has said to me, Venerable Ananda, sir, here we go again, we are householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. For us, all of that, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that this doctrine, in this doctrine and discipline, the hearts of the very young monks and nuns leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this doctrine and discipline is contrary to this whole great mass of people in this issue of renunciation. So he's basically saying, I don't get it. You know, it's so nice to indulge in sensuality. Why should we renounce anything? And uh, the Buddha says, so it is, Ananda, so it is. Even I myself, this is the Buddha speaking, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, thought, renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart didn't leap up at renunciation, didn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. The thought occurred to me, what is the cause, what is the reason why my heart doesn't leap up? at renunciation, seeing it as peace. Then the thought occurred to me, I haven't seen the drawbacks of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that as an understanding. I haven't understood the rewards of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with it. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, or firm. Then the thought occurred to me, Having seen the drawback of sensual pleasures and the reward of renunciation, there is the possibility that my heart would leap up. So at a later time, having seen the drawback of sensual pleasures, I pursued that theme. Having understood the reward of renunciation, I familiarized myself with it. My heart leaped up at renunciation, grew confident, steadfast and firm, seeing it as peace. Then quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by, and it goes on to describe his path through the jhanas, 
but it's just this process of not rejection, but exploring what are the limitations of sensual desire and what are the rewards and blessings of renunciation. And that is what caused his heart to leap up at the thought of renunciation because he saw that sensual desires and pleasures are impermanent, unreliable, and uncontrollable. We don't control whether they come or go. And that they can be a trap, that we're always chasing after the next thing that we think uh, is going to do it for us. Society tells us if you get this or that, um, look like this or that, then you'll be happy. You know, all of the accoutrements of a modern life that we think might be the next best thing. And the Buddha back then saw it's not. That's not going to do it for you. It might bring a temporary happiness, but it's fleeting. It always changes. And so the contemplation that he undertook and what we're invited into is what is true happiness and what actually cultivates or draws us closer to true happiness and the possibility of giving up a lesser happiness for a greater one. This is the wisdom that gets uh, invited from us in this practice, to give up a short-term happiness or gain for a long-term benefit or happiness. In the Dhammapada, it's a little um, text of teachings, often very poetic. It says, if by renouncing a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness which is greater, then the wise pursue that happiness which is greater. Tanisaru Bhikkhu, who's a great scholar and teacher, has a monastery down in San Diego, talks about trading candy for gold. And the candy is the little things that we love, you know, and I don't mean to be pejorative, but just the sensual delights and pleasures and objects that we can lust after. The gold is the real happiness, the, the peace, the contentment. He said, we make intelligent sacrifices, which means giving top priority to the mind. Material things and social relationships are unstable and easily affected by forces beyond our control. So the happiness they offer is fleeting and undependable. But the well-being of a well-trained mind can survive even aging, illness, and death. To train the mind, though, requires time and energy. This is one reason why the pursuit of true happiness demands that we sacrifice some of our external pleasures. It takes time and energy to meditate, takes a huge amount of time and energy and resources to come on a retreat like this. So you are doing that. You're sacrificing the comforts and the contentment of your daily lives, your home, your family, your friends, to be here in the simplicity of retreat. So we are doing this. Can we find happiness, contentment in the simplicity of our lives here and really start to understand what we do that is of real benefit for us, long-term benefit, rather than these superficial um, fleeting happinesses of the sense pleasures. And so we can start to kind of touch into what 
what are the signs that we're on a path that leads to more and more happiness. Analayo Bhikkhu, again a great teacher and translator, said the whole of the Buddhist path could be seen as a progressive refinement of joy. I love that. So even as we talk about renunciation, it's not about getting grim and determined, sackcloth and ashes, but really we know we're on the right path when we're experiencing greater ease and well-being and happiness and contentment and our relationships become more harmonious. Our um, sense of self becomes more loving and at ease with ourselves. And I'm not saying, you know, this is guaranteed to happen tomorrow or it's happening already, but that's the direction that we're going. And so it seems in some ways when we talk about it like this, kind of obvious that this is what we would do, right? We would cultivate the mind and heart in this way to bring more happiness and peace and ease. We'd think we're logical beings. This makes sense, right? But we're not, are we? We're not logical. The heart is not logical. We're very irrational at times and we're shaped by our conditioning and our neuroses that push us and pull us. Um, And all of that impacts our decisions, our reactivity, our sense of of, um, lack of self-worth, lack of self-love, the trauma and the fear that we often live with. There's lots of studies done about how really irrational we are. We don't truly understand what's for our own well-being. And so it's why we develop mindfulness to be more in touch to be clear about the choices that we make, to bring discernment, wisdom to experience. Because we can't follow this path because we think we should, because we think it's good for us, or especially if someone else tells us that we should. It's really got to be out of a love of this kind of deepening, a love of this kind of of letting go. You can't force renunciation. If it feels like a deprivation, it's like going on a diet. You know, if you're always hungry and grumpy, who's going to stay on a diet? It just doesn't work. It doesn't land. It has to be embodied. It has to be a, a lifestyle change. And it has to be something, as the Buddha says, where our heart leaps up. I don't know if this talk is going to quite do it for you, but just putting out the possibility. And given the world that we live in, renunciation, and again, we can trade off this word um, renunciation for other words, but simplicity is a really good translation or alternate to renunciation. Given climate change and all the challenges that are happening on our planet, to live as simply as we can, using only the resources that we need. This is what's asked of us, you know. We just have to open our eyes and see what's happening to know that we're really called to do this, to live in a wise way on this fragile, beautiful planet that we share. Joseph Goldstein calls renunciation non-addiction, It's non-obsessiveness. It's a letting go of this obsessive tendency of mind that never has enough. You know that place where there's always this little niggling something out there that'll fill that hole, make me feel complete, happy, satisfied? 
So it, it, in on and of itself, it's actually calming down that tendency, which if you really tune into it, is suffering, right? That place that's never enough, never okay. True renunciation comes from a sense of well-being, a sense of contentment, not always grasping. So it's actually a very gentle practice. We're not talking about throwing everything away and, you know, sackcloth and ashes. Another word I like instead of or as well as renunciation is relinquishment. It's got this great sense of letting go of what doesn't serve us anymore. And that leading to ease, just relinquishing. Renunciation does sound like denial, especially renounce. I, I, you know, renounce, it sounds like denounce, you know. It's like this stick that we're beating ourselves with or beating the stuff away. I renounce you. And that's whatever we're announcing is bad or wrong and we should get rid of it. And if we hold on, we're bad and wrong. It has this kind of anger and aversiveness to it. I recently, I read a book a little while ago by Jeff Dyer. It's just a novel, but uh, it was called Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi. And because he ends up in Varanasi, that's the uh, town in India with the burning ghats where, by the holy river Ganges, where people go um, when they're dying. And it's considered uh, very highly um, a great blessing to die and be uh, burned there. Um, so there's a lot of medita- meditative uh, pondering in this book. But I really loved this paragraph he wrote. He said, We think of renunciation happening formally, definitively, possibly as a result of frustration, anger, or disappointment. And the classic is, you know, this world I do renounce, you know, turning my back on this world and all of its, you know, foolishness, this kind of anger. But he says, But it can happen gradually, so gradually it doesn't feel like renunciation. The reason it doesn't feel like renunciation is because it's not. I didn't renounce the world, I just became gradually less interested in certain aspects of it, less involved with it, and that diminution of interest was slowly reciprocated. That's how it works. The world stops singling you out and you stop feeling singled out by the world. I really thought that was very wise, this gradual diminution of interest. Of, and he says, you know, it's this me, 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 you know, the world revolving about me and who I am and what I can get and everything that's uh, centered around that. So it can be very gradual. It doesn't have to be a big push away. I was exploring this for myself because uh, in 1997, I bought a car. And it was the first new car I had ever bought. Um, And you know what a new car is like? It's like so spiffy and shiny, the new car smell and all that. And I just thought it was the perfect car for me. I was so happy with it. And I can remember, even though it's now a long time ago, even when it started to get dirty, that seemed like an insult. Like, my new car, and it's dusty. And then, of course, the first scratch and ding and bump and the mud and the dirt and everything. And after a while, it wasn't a new car anymore. It was just my car, and it was a good car, and it served me really well. But I started to notice that everyone else had newer cars because I still had this same old car. And it was, at, at some point, so old it only had a tape player. And I'm like, 
no one even makes tapes anymore. So I got a, a CD player. So that was the big step up. So now I'm, I'm good for another 10 years. So I kept that car. And then, you know, I started, it doesn't, didn't have a cup holder. It, you know, it didn't have this. And it certainly didn't have a navigation system or anything. The thing, But I, every time I'd look around and see, everyone else seems like they're getting a new car. I don't have one. And the mind would sort of go, I should get a new car. And then I'd look and say, but this car works. Everything I need it to do, it does. Gets me from A to B, it's reliable. Da, da, da. And so I, I'd watched that over about five to six years of just that idea, I should get a new car, you know, so-and-so. And then, of course, Priuses came along. It's like, oh, I should get a Prius because this is Marin. How can you not have a Prius? And it'd be so, you know, environmental to have a Prius and they're shiny and fancy and new. But I just couldn't do it. I just, years went by. And actually, this year, I got a new car. Actually, we got a new car. We got a little electric leaf. So it's this little tiny thing. And it's great. I love it. But it was just so interesting to watch the mind. And what was clear to me is I felt I should get, I didn't really need a new car until it really started, you know, it was 17 years old by the end. Um, but just watching that movement of mind of the comparison and the enticement to the new shiny thing and new cars, you know, they're fun, but now we have a car that's getting old already, right? Even though it's only a few months old. So it's this exploration, being willing to just question, you know, what is it that we need? What serves us? Um, what's truly important? And it can be really joyful and freeing to be clear about that, to not feel pushed and pulled. You know, this book that's on been, I don't know if it still is, I didn't check before I came in, but it's certainly been on the bestseller list for over a year now is uh, Marie Kondo, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Anyone know that book? My sister is totally into it. She's like piled all her clothes on her bed and you meant to only keep the things that bring you joy. It's like, well, that's a big ask for a piece of clothing, you know, <laughs> my... You know, but anyway, that's her theme. Um, but you, it, what she says is, it actually clears space in your life that you feel you're living with what you care about instead of living with stuff, and that after that process, all kinds of other areas open up. You know, your again, this is the magic part. You know, your career and your relation, everything's going to apparently get better. That's what my sister's waiting for, anyway. Um, <laughs> But she was very good at the clearing out part. But there is some real truth to that, to not feeling oppressed and burdened by our stuff, right? How, mu how much too much stuff do we have? Anyone feel they have too much stuff? I mean, most of us do, right? In, you know, practicing a lot, we, we do hang out a lot with monastics. Um, some of my favorite teachers are monastics and visit monasteries and it's always inspiring because they are such clear symbols of renunciation they have taken these vows of simplicity and I remember hearing Ajahn Metta one of the nuns from um, Amaravati monastery talking about when she ordained and how she was very nervous about it it's a huge amount of letting go to ordain in that tradition, you know, shaving the head, you shave your eyebrows in that tradition. You give away everything. So there's no, you know, nice little back door. You give away everything. But she felt such joy and lightness when she stepped over that 
threshold into the ordained life. And she said, now my life is just so much not concerned about what do I need to buy, shopping, looks, fashion, just that whole area of life is just non-existent for her. And what she said is in its place is joy and contentment in simplicity. It was very moving. Suzuki Roshi, that great uh, Japanese Zen master, says, Renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but accepting that they go away. And that's a big part. It's going. The car gets old. The cup breaks. Our practice is letting that go with grace. And so this act is the opposite of the first noble, the cause of the first noble truth. The first noble truth is suffering. The cause is holding on. The cause is craving, clinging attachment. Renunciation frees us from that cause of suffering. And in that space, we never know what's going to open up for us. Again, this beautiful Zen poem. When my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. That's letting go, right? When my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. So this is how we practice with this. What's a wise relationship to things, to sensual pleasures, not fearful or avoiding, not rejecting or denouncing, but engaging with, meeting that, and exploring for ourselves what are our true needs that lead to well-being, not our wants and superficial desires. So I've spoken mainly about relationship with things and with sensual pleasures. One of the biggest renunciations we are called on to make, views and opinions. We can hold on tighter to, the, to those than anything. You know, most of us are like, eh, you know, here, have this. I can give that away. You know, because we know we can get more, right? Usually. But views and opinions? <clears throat> you know, that's who we are, right? The right and wrong and the political camps. I mean, it's embarrassing, isn't it? The political discourse in this country... I don't know if I can or shouldn't say this because I'm Australian, not a U.S. I am a citizen now, but you travel overseas and people say, what is going on in this country? I just got back from visiting my family. They're, they're like... But it's out of that, the people holding on. I mean, and the distortions and the convolutions... And the lies that come out of this believing um, we're right and you're wrong, whatever side we're on in this. But we're all part of that, right? We all have our variation of where we're right, where we draw the line in the sand. I uh, often have led for many years and um, still participate in a program we have here at Spirit Rock called the Dedicated Practitioner Program, DPP, where we, a two-year program, five retreats. We really create community in that program, and we talk about and practice with bringing Dharma into every aspect of our life. And often at the beginning of those retreats, as we come together, we would ask people to take precepts, just like we did here. We would add another 
um, precept, but really we'd frame it as renouncing. We would ask people to formally, and we do it at like a precept, formally renounce judging, fixing, and comparing. And, you know, it's not as though just saying that makes it so, but just to have the intention not to hold on to, you know, our judgments and our comparing and our rights and wrongs. We love being right, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the... And it's hard to be wrong, you know? It's hard to admit being wrong. One of the best pieces of relationship advice I heard was, whoever is doing it is doing it right. I can't say that I always abide by it, but I certainly remember it in those moments. Because don't you feel if you're, even in a family, you know, it's not just about intimate relationships, but where we can be in our family system and feel we know what's right for other members of the family or family decisions that have to be made, or even in our work situation, it's like, I have surveyed all of the knowledge there is about, you know, loading a dishwasher and this is the way it should be done, or, you know, how to drive a car or, you know, deal with family situations. And it's really surprising when others don't want the benefit of our opinion or our, you know, wise advice. But to really see that as so important in this practice of letting go, because what we're doing here is solidifying a sense of self and certainly self and other, this sense of separation this energy that comes, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, I've got to fix this, why aren't they doing it the way I say it should be done, if only they'd done it the way I... It's just suffering, because the world does not listen to you most of the time. Hopefully you've seen that. So renouncing self-righteous indignation, this sense of not always being in the right, a sense of humility, um, such a practice and a generous offering to be humble. This is really called for if we want contentment and ease in the mind to have this sense of humility. And these reflections that I've talked about for true happiness beyond being right, beyond acquiring a certain number or quality of material possession status, Bhikkhu Bodhi said, real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so they no longer bind us. So it's not even getting rid of them. It's changing our perspective so they no longer bind us. No longer, oh, this is mine and creates my identity. There's a great story in the suttas of a man who was a king. But I forget the reason that he gave up his kingship and became a monk. I think he just said, someone else do this now, the prince or whatever, and became a monk. And he was very devoted and practicing meditating. But the other monks would listen to, would hear him speaking while he was meditating. And he was saying, bliss, what bliss bliss, what bliss. And they were like, what's he talking about? What's he thinking about when he's talking about bliss? And they, this happened a lot in the suttas. They went off to the Buddha and said, you know that guy? He's saying this. And you know, the Buddha's like, well, okay. So he said, come here. And he said, here's what I'm hearing, that you're sitting meditating saying, bliss, what bliss? 
Are you thinking about your kingly delights? And he said, oh no, Lord. He said, when I was a king, my mind was filled with fear, greed, and anger. I was always worried someone wanted to take my kingdom. I was always having to go out and... and, um, uh, start wars on other other kingdoms. My life was full of anxiety. He said, now I'm a monk. There is nothing but ease and contentment in my mind. This is what I. This is why I say bliss. Oh bliss, ease and contentment and fearlessness. So not just about giving up, not rejecting, not denouncing, but wise balance wise responsiveness in all of the aspects of our lives, even here in practice. It's not about, you know, gung-ho, more is better. What's wise effort, as Bonnie was talking about last night? But in, you know, when we are back at home, in our work, in our, um, how we amuse ourselves, what's the right wise balance? Again, another cartoon. The first uh, frame, it says... uh, mouse trap and it's got a mouse looking at a trap you know and the mouse is going oh cheese you know bad move right but the next next frame is two people looking at a computer and they're going oh internet connection and it's like you know that trap where we, we it's like a portal right we can just get pulled in click 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 watch click watch Pema Chodron that great uh, Tibetan teacher says She says, uh, renunciation is saying yes to the present moment. That's really quite radical. Usually we think it's saying no to the present moment. She says, renunciation is saying yes to the present moment, to the best part of ourselves. She says, the whole journey of renunciation or starting to say yes to life is realizing, first of all, that you've come up against your edge that everything in you is saying no, and then at that point, softening. This is yet another opportunity to develop loving kindness for yourself, which results in playfulness, learning to play like the raven in the wind. I love that. This up against your edge, and then the renunciation is softening. It's not saying no, no. So renunciation can really be a source of happiness, of joy. The relinquishment, relinquishment of what no longer serves us. And it's, again, it's not this big, you know, the, in the Buddhist text we are saying, this sudden dropping off, this kind of over the cliff and letting go of everything. It's a gesture that we do over and over again in a moment, in a day, in an experience. Sometimes very quietly. It's not a big drama. It's just letting go of contention, letting go of the no, letting go of the not-enoughness. There's the happiness in following the precepts that we do here, what we call the bliss of blamelessness, living in harmony and, and out of compassion for fellow yogis and all the animals on the land. We can really feel the blessing of that. The happiness of the renunciation of the simplicity of retreat, how little we actually need. All you have is what you brought with you. Yet you're okay, right? You, maybe there's things you'd like to have, but you have what you need. And the joy you can get from being out in nature here or a bowl of oatmeal in the morning, the simplest of food, 
this simplicity is what allows the mind and heart to open. This is the space we need to discover, to grow, to deepen. If everything is full, you know, it's like that the story of someone coming to visit the teacher and they're pouring the water into the cup and it's already full. No more can go in. This kind of renunciation, this simplicity, makes the space for the heart to open because we're abiding in contentment. And I'm not, you know, it's not woo-woo, it's not like it's always okay and things are good, but this is the direction that we go of just the simplicity of not making all these choices every day. You know, even where to eat. Here we have the food that's served. And, you know, the cooks make us beautiful, nutritious food, but it's not perhaps what you would choose. Or maybe you're not used to vegetarian food. Or maybe you have digestive challenges or allergies or an illness. There are real, can be real challenges around the food here, even as beautifully as it, and lovingly as it's prepared. But our practice here is, can we find a way that it's okay, that it's enough as we live here? And ultimately, renunciation is letting go of craving, letting go of that obsessiveness of mind that's always seeking, grasping, never enough. Not a cold turning away rejection, but opening to true happiness, true contentment, true trust and confidence that you have, all you need is here. It's so radical to feel that. Everything you need is here right now. Again, I'll finish with the words of the Buddha. Whosoever has turned to renunciation, turned to detachment of the mind, is filled with all-embracing love and freed from thirsting after becoming. Whosoever has turned to renunciation, turned to detachment of the mind, is filled with all-embracing love and freed from thirsting after becoming. So let's let the words settle, come back into silence.
Thank you for your attention. Time now for some walking, the cool night air, perhaps time for a cup of tea just to refresh the spirits and then come back for the last sit of the evening with the chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.